and welcome to a brand new edition of The S Factor, right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And this show, The S Factor, is all about science. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock, right here on this great radio station, and also anytime on your favorite podcasting service. Let's get right into the science news now. Now, I'm sure if you've been watching television, any kind of media at all, climate change is all over the place. And it is one of those lightning rod topics in the world today. No one that I've ever met actually likes pollution. Coming up with an innovative way to harness like solar power, for example, would be a great thing. We're just not there yet. We're certainly not there yet when it comes to, you know, just turning off the tap completely and going with a renewable energy like that. That's that's totally clean. This next story talks about what could be perhaps the next step in in our solar energy advancement. This next news bit brought to you by Space.com. Space-based solar power could really work, experiment shows. European aerospace giant Airbus demonstrated how solar power could be beamed from space in a new experiment. So far, the wireless transmission system has only bridged a distance of a little over 100 feet, but engineers are confident they can increase its range to reach all the way to space within the next decade. The demonstration, which took place at Airbus X-Works Innovation Factory in Germany in September, saw electrical power transmitted from a photovoltaic panel in the form of microwaves to a receiver some 118 feet away. The beamed energy lit up a model city and powered a hydrogen generator and a fridge containing alcohol-free beer that the audience later enjoyed. Even though it might seem a long way to go from 118 feet to Earth's orbit, Airbus engineers believe that the first operating power-beaming prototypes could be in use by the early 2030s. Now that we have successfully tested the key bricks of a future-based solar power system on a small scale for the first time, we are ready to take power beaming to the next level, said one of the Airbus research project leaders in a statement. Now, Airbus will likely first attempt to beam solar power from an aerial platform before aiming for space. Ultimately, solar power harvested in space and beamed to aircraft could revolutionize aviation the company thinks. Flying aircraft could also serve as mobile nodes transmitting the power wherever else it might be needed on Earth. Now think about this for a minute, folks. When you are capturing that solar power from space, it doesn't matter if you have a cloudy day. It doesn't matter if you have several cloudy days. There would be nothing obstructing your path to receiving that solar power once it's captured in space. So what they're talking about here is capturing it in space, in orbit where the sun is always shining and beaming it down to us is ultimately what they're talking about here. Now, this could in fact be a game changer for aircraft with the potential to extend the range, reduce the weight, but also to relay power to other places, managing energy like data. Janine Dominique Costa, a senior manager at Airbus's Blue Sky Department, which develops innovative technologies, said in a statement, Space-based solar power could also help wean the world off fossil fuels and contribute to a zero-carbon future in lines with calls of the international climate science community. Scientists believe that in order to prevent the planet from warming on average by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, the global economy would have to be fully decarbonized by 2050. However, this goal is still not within reach, according to a recent United Nations report on climate change. 
Power beaming technologies would enable the creation of new energy networks in the sky and could help solve the energy problem, Costa said. They would enable countries to fully control and distribute their energy where needed independently. Solar power energy generation is much more efficient in space than on Earth's surface, where clouds and day-night cycle prevent achieving maximum illumination. In fact, solar radiation is 50% more intense in space, where no air stands in the way of the rays. However, the technology is not without its drawbacks. If satellites were to collect the sunlight, they would need to measure about 2 kilometers to 1.2 miles across to achieve the same power level as a nuclear power plant. And nothing of that size has ever flown in space. The largest space-borne structure ever assembled in orbit is the International Space Station, which is about the size of a football field. Acosta said that the microwave beams that carry harvested solar energy can be designed to prevent harm to technology as well as living creatures. He sees future advantages of the system and its ability to distribute power all over the world without the need for any further based infrastructure. There is no need for complex and costly ground infrastructure, power plants, pipelines, or cables, for example, to distribute the electricity on Earth, it said. That, too, is done by power beaming. So they're not talking about taking this solar power that is captured in space and distributing it via wires or anything. They're actually talking about beaming that down exactly where it is needed. Now, the system will not be more expensive than conventional ground-based power generation infrastructure, such as nuclear power plants or large-scale solar or wind farms, according to Airbus. Considered the realm of science fiction until recently, space-based solar power has been gaining more prominence lately with the world's leading space agencies launching development projects and feasibility studies that could lead to the first space-based energy harvesters flying in the next decade. The space agencies admit that advances in several areas, including robotics and in-orbit manufacturing, would need to be made to make space-based solar power visions a reality. So this harvesting station that would be beaming this free energy down to Earth would need to be 1.2 miles across. That's pretty big. We're an oil-based economy. So energy is so very important to the way we live our lives today, to have modern civilization as we all enjoy it to be. We need energy and we need a lot of it every single day in this country and other developed countries. Ultimately, having a free energy source, I mean, we have an unbelievable energy source in the sky known as the sun, our star, our host star here in our solar system, filled with nothing but free energy. And according to science, 5 billion years left of that burning free energy is right up there. Zero carbon footprint. Just how do we get it? And I think this is a step in the right direction. Let me know what you think about this. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net, info at scienceanimated.net. There are no phone calls here on the Yes Factor because it's a pre-recorded show, but the best way to communicate with me is through my email address or on Facebook or Twitter. Again, Facebook is facebook.com slash scienceanimated, and on Twitter, it's twitter.com slash scienceanimated. And if you go to scienceanimated.net, you can also fill out the contact form. But I'd love to hear your opinion on this energy beam that they are working on. Now, of course, it really isn't the time of year now to do this a lot, but going outside and, and having a little barbecue and eating dinner outside or lunch, sitting outside can be quite enjoyable when the weather's nice. But those darn pesky insects 
namely mosquitoes, can really make it difficult for you to do that. This next story is about repelling insects. This is from SciTech Daily. Scientists have developed a wearable ring that repels insects. Martin Luther University Hill Wittenberg scientists have invented a new type of insect repellent delivery device. The active ingredient is first encapsulated and shaped into the appropriate shape, such as a ring, which may then be worn and release an agent meant to repel mosquitoes for an extended period of time. The team published their findings in the International Journal of Pharmaceutics. The researchers used IR3535, an insect repellent developed by Merck, to create their prototypes. Mosquito sprays containing IR3535 are very gentle on the skin and have been used all over the world for many years. That's why I've been using the agent for our experiments, says Professor Rene Andros from the MLU. It typically comes in from the form of a sprayer lotion and provides protection for several hours. However, Andros and his colleagues are searching for methods to release the agent over a much longer length of time, such as encapsulating it in a wearable ring or bracelet. Insect repellent was carefully inserted into a biodegradable polymer using a specialized 3D printing technology, and the mixture of substances was successfully shaped in various ways. The basic idea is that the insect repellent continuously evaporates and forms a barrier for insects, explains the lead author of the study, Fan Fan Du, a doctoral candidate at MLU. The rate at which the insect repellent evaporates depends on many different factors, including temperature, concentration, and the structure of the polymer used. After conducting various experiments and simulations, the team predicts that the insect repellent needs well over a week to evaporate completely at a temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the body's temperature. While the researchers have proven that it is absolutely possible to develop a wearable insect repellent, the rings and other forms created for the study are only prototypes. According to Androsh, further research needs to be carried out to determine how well the rings function under actual conditions. The encapsulation material could also be further optimized. Now, do you ever wonder how these little darn mosquitoes follow you all over the place if you're outside? You could be in the complete darkness with no lights on, and they will follow you all over the place. And that is because... They are attracted to what we exhale. And what do we exhale? Carbon dioxide. So they're attracted to carbon dioxide, and that's how they find out where we are, even in the dark, these mosquitoes. Hopefully this wearable ring will be further developed, and it'll be something that we could use in the future to keep those little critters away from us when it's nice out in the spring and summer, and even the fall, and you just want to relax outside without having these critters bothering you constantly. Scientists have been left baffled after discovering the Earth is spinning faster than normal, making days shorter than usual. New measurements by the UK's National Physical Laboratory show that the Earth is spinning faster than it was half a century ago. On June 29th, the Earth's full rotation took 1.59 milliseconds less than 24 hours, the shortest day ever recorded. Scientists have warned that if the rotation rate continues to speed up, we may need to remove a second from our atomic clocks. If Earth's fast rotation continues, it could lead to the introduction of the first ever negative leap second, astrophysicist Graham Jones reported via DaytonTime.com. This would be required to keep civil time, which is based on the super-steady beat of atomic clocks, in step with solar time, which is based on the movement of the sun across the sky. 
A negative leap second would mean that our clocks skip one second, which could potentially create problems for IT systems. Researchers at Meta said a leap second would have colossal effects on technology and become a major source of pain for hardware in infrastructures. The impact of a negative leap second has never been tested on a large scale. It could have a devastating effect on software relying on times or schedulers. A blog post on the topic authored by researchers recently claimed. Now, the scientists claim the irregular rotations are the result of something called the Chandler Wobbler, an irregular movement of Earth's geographical poles across the surface of the globe. The normal amplitude of the Chandler Wobble is about 3 to 4 meters at Earth's surface, but from 2017 to 2020 it disappeared. Some experts believe the melting and refreezing of ice caps on the world's tallest mountains could be contributing to the irregular speed. Earth has recorded its shortest day since scientists began using atomic clocks to measure its rotational speed. On June 29, 2022, Earth completed one spin in 1.59 milliseconds less than 24 hours. This is the latest in a series of speed records for Earth since 2020. If you look at that time there, 1.59 milliseconds less than 24 hours, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. That's such a small blip. But apparently these scientists are saying that this could have major implications for our technology. Now they said there's a 70% chance the planet has already reached a minimum length of a day, meaning we would likely never have to use a negative leap second. But they claim there's no way to know that for certain. So that's very interesting there. They may have to adjust those atomic clocks. Again, I want to thank you for joining me here today on The S-Factor. If you have a question or comment, there is no phone calls taken because this is a pre-recorded show. It's new, but it's pre-recorded. So simply send me an email, info at scienceanimated.net's the email address. That's info at scienceanimated.net, and we can start a dialogue, or you can send me a message on any of the social media platforms that Science Animated is a part of. Now, usually when I promote this show, The Yes Factor, whether it's the radio show here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT or the podcast, I like to have a little fun. And I like to say this show is brain food. Well, speaking of brains, can minds persist when they are cut off from the world? Could we ever create a brain in a vat? The following from Live Science, could a brain ever exist on its own, divorced from or independent of a body? For a long time, philosophers have pondered such brain-in-a-vat scenarios, asking whether isolated brains could maintain consciousness when separated from their bodies and senses. Typically, a person's experiences are categorized by a web of interactions between the human brain, body, and environment. But recent developments in neuroscience mean this conversation has moved from the realm of hypothetical speculation in science fiction to isolated examples where consciousness could be sealed off from the rest of the world. In a 2020 study detailed in the journal Trends in Neuroscience, philosopher Tim Bain of the University of Melbourne and neuroscientist and Marcelo Massimini of the University of Milan in Italy described contexts in which such islands of awareness could exist. In one possible situation, a brain that has been removed from its host is able to sustain consciousness using the oxygen and nutrients necessary for function delivered via some kind of apparatus. This is called the ex-craniobrain. In a study that sounds like something out of a horror movie, researchers were able to successfully restore blood flow to brain cells, cellular functions of neurons, and spontaneous synapse activity in pigs' brains that were removed after death and connected to a system called BrainX. 
The system, which is designed to slow the degeneration of brain tissue after death, can be connected to the base of a postmortem brain, delivering warm, artificial, oxygenated blood. In people who suffer from severe refractory epilepsy, one treatment called a hemispherotomy involves completely disconnecting the damaged half of the brain from the other hemisphere, brainstem and thalamus. In these cases, the damaged half remains inside the skull and connected to the vascular system. While the disconnected hemisphere continues to receive the nutrients and oxygen needed for function, some have wondered whether this isolated hemisphere supports an adjacent consciousness to the opposing connected hemisphere. And of course, this question has been asked for centuries. What is consciousness? Where is it located? And scientists have created lab-based mini-brains, 3D structures developed from stem cells that display various features of the developing human brain. Some of these brains in the dish have brain waves, similar to those seen in preterm babies. But do any of these brains actually possess consciousness? Scientists can't deduce consciousness from behavior in these cases, nor can they ask these brains if they ha are experiencing consciousness. This, con this conundrum has led neuroscientists to devise a potential objective measure of consciousness. For instance, scientists could use a so-called perturbational complexity index, PCI, which is based on the level of interactions between neurons within these brains. Using this index, scientists would electrically stimulate a part of the brain and then measure the resulting patterns of neural activity to gauge the complexity of brain cell interactions. The resulting measurement of these interactions carries a lot of information. Then the system can be said to be more conscious. It's kind of like tossing a rock into a pond and measuring the resulting ripples. If the ripples interact with other objects in the pond, setting off more ripples, then the more conscious the system. In states where people have not been fully conscious, PCI has been a reliable indicator of their level of consciousness. For instance, being in a coma, sleeping would be considered a lower, lower level of consciousness or awareness. But even if consciousness doesn't turn out to be reducible to any neural signal in the brain, Bain believes the task of developing an objective measure of consciousness is still a valid one. While these techniques might not be able to definitively answer the question of whether consciousness is present in these contexts, they will provide answers to some fundamental questions, such as whether islands of awareness have the same level of neural complexity as the brains of conscious subjects. Or do these brains simply go offline once disconnected from the external world? Consciousness has been a very hot topic in the news as of late. On last month's edition of The S-Factor, I talk about Google DeepMind and the, and the teams at Google, the AI team, working day and night to create artificial intelligence. There's a whole system that Google employs to determine whether or not AI is conscious. In my opinion, there's only one way to truly know if artificial intelligence, for example, obtains true consciousness. We have to know if it's self-aware. That is the only way we will know if consciousness exists for, like in, in this case, AI. Something has got to be self-aware. What does that mean? Knowing that you exist. And that is going to be a very tough event to measure. But as you can see here, we're still learning about the brain. We're trying to tinker around, figure out what part of the brain does consciousness come from? Can brains that are literally disconnected be reanimated with artificial blood and have some level of consciousness? Israeli scientists discover how to make elderly human skin young again. Have scientists at Haifa's Ramban Healthcare Campus 
and the Technion Israeli Institute of Technology and colleagues abroad, to, after two decades of research, discovered the fountain of youth? This omnipresent human desire seems closer to fulfillment, at least in laboratory mice on whom the researchers discovered a mechanism for rejuvenating human organs. And when you think about the desire to stay young or to reverse aging, think about all the products that we sell in just America alone. The wrinkle creams, the hair dyes, the Botox stuff, the techniques that they use to regrow hair. None of us want to really age. At least we don't want to look like we're aging. So I'm sure this would pique a lot of people's interest here. Now, using an old skin graft on young mice, they prove that it is possible to make skin and other organs young again via a change in molecular structure through all the layers of skin. Transplanting aged human skin onto young mice with severe combined immunodeficiency disease that genetically affects both B and T lymphocytes can rejuvenate the transplantation of living cells, tissues, or organs from one species to another. This is accompanied by the growth of new blood vessels, repigmentation of the epidermis, outer layer of skin, and significant improvements in vital biomarkers connected to aging. If one accepts the view that aging is an ultimately and fatal disease whose progress can be slowed and reversed and views aging as a druggable and reprogrammable target, dissecting the key drivers of human organ aging and developing effective molecular strategies to prevent or even reverse it surely constitutes one of the most fundamental missions of biomedical research. To achieve this, age re aging research models are critically needed in which not only the key drivers of human organ aging can be identified, but also the most promising strategies to prevent getting old and to make humans young again through drugs that remo remove old cells can be tested on lab animals before using on patients. Human skin is ideally suited as such a preclinical aging research model, but is rarely used by mainstream aging research for this purpose. But aging of the human body first becomes visible in changes of the skin and the graying of the hair. While massive industry efforts therefore cater to the ancient human desire to halt or reverse the phenotype of aging skin, success at this frontier has remained moderate at best, and many product claims of rejuvenation of human skin are typically insufficiently substantiated. Now, the team previously grafted aged human skin on SCID young mice, but they didn't know whether the rejuvenation of skin that they witnessed extended below the epidermis. To determine this, they used vascular endothelial growth factor A to promote human organ rejuvenation in lab animals. The aging was reversed when old human skin was transplanted on the young mice, thus confirming all layers of human skin could become young again. In addition, the number of new blood vessels in the skin also increased. Now, it's from the Jerusalem Post. What an incredible thing to think about. The Fountain of Youth. Think about all the stories over the years that have been told about the mystical Fountain of Youth. Now, I think most people actually do want to age because if you don't age, that means there's only one thing that's going to happen to you. I mean, every, we all would like to grow old gracefully. Imagine aging, so you're, you're going up in that number. However, you are not showing signs of it. And aha, that is the key. That is the key. That's what everyone seems to want. Now, according to this Jerusalem Post article, I think they are just in the beginning stages of understanding how this graft skin is reacting in, in such a way. So it'll be interesting to follow this research and see 
where it ends up. Now, if you've been listening to the S Factor for one or two years, I'm sure I have brought up in the past, as a matter of fact, I know I had a show on it, the solar flares, especially the X-Class flares, the big ones that could fry our electronics, fry our grid. We are nowhere ready for that. I don't think any country in the world is actually ready for something like that. Now, when the sun has these eruptions of supercharged particles and they head towards Earth, there's, there are different classifications for them. The X-Class is the most destructive one that would wipe out the satellites, satellite communications. It would probably take, I've heard anywhere between 10 and 15 years to get us back. And, and you know, imagine the devastation that would happen in, in the meantime. It would be a bad day at the office. That, that would be a, the, probably the most massive understatement I could say about something like that happening. So this next story is all about solar weather. This from space.com. Wild solar weather is causing satellites to plummet from orbit, and it's only going to get worse. In late 2021, operators of the European Space Agency's Swarm Constellation noticed something worrying. The satellites, which measure the magnetic field around Earth, started sinking towards the atmosphere at an unusually fast rate, up to 10 times faster than before. The change coincided with the onset of the new solar cycle, and experts think it might be the beginning of some difficult years for spacecraft orbiting our planet. In the last five, six years, the satellites were sinking about two and a half kilometers, which is 1.5 miles a year, Andrew Strom, ESA's Swarm Mission Manager, told Space.com. But since December last year, they have been virtually diving. The sink rate between December and April have been 20 kilometers, which is 12 miles per year. That's a massive difference. Satellites orbiting close to Earth always face the drag of the residual atmosphere, which gradually slows the spacecraft and eventually makes them fall back to the planet. They usually don't survive the so-called re-entry and burn up in the atmosphere. This atmospheric drag forces the International Space Station's controllers to perform regular reboost maneuvers to maintain the station's orbit of 250 miles above Earth. This drag also helps clean up the near-Earth environment from space junk. Scientists know that the intensity of this drag depends on solar activity. The amount of solar wind spewed by the sun, which varies depending on the 11-year solar cycle, the last cycle, which officially ended in December 2019, was rather sleepy. But since last fall, the star has been waking up, spewing more and more solar wind and generating sunspots, solar flares, and coronal mass ejections at a growing rate and the Earth's upper atmosphere has felt the effects. I mean, think about it, folks. Think about how many satellites are in orbit. I mean, you can actually check out a map online and look at all of these satellites. They are everywhere. You have dead satellites up there that are just floating around. I would say we've been at the point for, for several years now where modern civilization depends on these satellites functioning. There's a lot of complex physics that we still don't fully understand going on in the upper layers of the atmosphere where it interacts with the solar wind. Strom said, We know that this interaction causes an upwelling of the atmosphere. That means that the denser air shifts upwards to higher altitudes. Denser air means higher drag for the satellites, even though this density is still incredibly low, 250 miles above Earth. The increase caused by the upwelling atmosphere is enough to virtually send some of the low-orbiting satellites plummeting. It's almost like running with the wind against you, Shrum said. It's harder, it's drag, so it slows the satellites down, and when they slow down, they sink. 
The Swarm constellation launched in, launched in 2013 consists of three satellites, two of which orbit Earth at an altitude of 270 miles, about 20 miles above the International Space Station. The third Swarm satellite circles the planet somewhat higher, about 320 miles above ground. The two lower orbiting spacecraft were hit more by the suns acting out than the higher satellite was. The situation with the lower two got so precarious that by May, operators had to start raising the satellite's altitude using onboard propulsion to save them. And what a brilliant thing for these engineers to think about, adding these little propulsion systems to them to combat these things, to move them ever so slightly. ESA's swarm satellites are not the only spacecraft struggling with worsening space weather. In February, SpaceX lost 40 brand new Starlink satellites that were hit by a solar storm just after launch. And we talked about that story here on the S-Factor. Now in such storms, satellites suddenly drop to lower altitudes. The lower the orbit of the satellites when the solar storm hits, the higher the risk of the spacecraft not being able to recover, leaving operators helplessly watching as the craft fall to their demise in the atmosphere. Starlink satellites have an operational orbit of 340 miles, which is above the most at-risk region. However, after launch, Falcon 9 rockets deposit the satellite batches very low, only about 217 miles above Earth. SpaceX then raises the satellite's orbit using onboard propulsion units. The company said the approach has advantages, as any satellite that experiences technical problems after launch would quickly fall back to Earth and not turn into pesky space debris. However, the increasing and unpredictable behavior of the sun makes those satellites vulnerable to mishaps. Now, all spacecraft around the 250-mile altitude are bound to have problems, Strom said. That includes the International Space Station, which will have to perform more frequent reboot maneuvers to keep afloat, but also the hundreds of CubeSats and small satellites that have populated low Earth orbit in the past decade. Those satellites, a product of the new space movement, Spearheaded by private entrepreneurs, pioneering simple, cheap technologies are particularly vulnerable. Many of the new satellites don't have propulsion systems. They don't have ways to get up. That basically means they will have a shorter lifetime in orbit. They will re-enter sooner than they would during the solar minimum. This gives you a little bit of insight, this article from Space.com, as to what the challenges are for the engineers of the satellites that we use every single day for a variety of things, the satellites in low Earth orbit, gives you a little insight on the challenges that they face when it comes to space weather. And this article doesn't even get into space de debris. I mean, you have things floating around out there, like remnants from old satellites, maybe some, one satellite smashed into another. So these technologies that we love down here are all made possible by those satellites that are orbiting hundreds of miles above our heads. Next bit of news is from The Guardian. A gold miner in Canada finds mummified 35,000-year-old woolly mammoth. It was a young miner digging through the northern Canadian permafrost in the seemingly aptly named Eureka Creek, who sounded the alarm when his front end loader struck something unexpected in the Klondike gold fields. What he had stumbled upon would later be described by the territory's paleontologist as one of the most incredible mummified ice animals ever discovered in the world. A stunningly preserved carcass of a baby woolly mammoth thought to be more than 35,000 years old. She's perfect and she's beautiful, Grant Zula, the paleontologist for the Canadian territory of the Yukon, told the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. 
She has a trunk, she has a tail, she has tiny little ears. She has the little prehensile end of the trunk where she could use it to grab grass. He described the find as the most important discovery in paleontology in North America. With much of the skin and hair intact, officials says the find ranks as the most complete mummified mammal found on the continent. The woolly mammoth is believed to have been a little over one month old when she died. Stretching 140 centimeters, she's slightly longer than the other whole baby woolly mammoth discovered in Siberia in 2007. The discovery was made on the traditional territory in the First Nation. At the ceremony this week, elders named the calf Nunchoka, meaning big baby animal in the Han language. The geologist who recovered her found a piece of grass in her stomach, hinting that the infant's last moments were spent grazing as she roamed a territory that at the time was home to wild horses, cave lions, and giant state bison. Her nearly perfectly preserved state suggests she may have ended up trapped in mud before ending up frozen in permafrost during the Ice Age. And that event, from getting trapped in the mud to burial, was very, very quick. And if you haven't seen the image of this baby woolly mammoth, I have it on the Science Animated Facebook page. It's really something to look at. It's incredible to have something that lived so very long ago, 35,000 years ago, that was quickly frozen in that permafrost during the Ice Age. To see something like that that is so old is absolutely incredible. Now, there was a permafrost bear that was found in Russian permafrost and my character orbit from the orbit show from scienceanimated.net he went to siberia to look at the permafrost bear and you can check that out that video at scienceanimated.net but how amazing is that you see as the earth is warming this permafrost is melting and they're discovering all of these animals i want to thank you very much for joining me today on the s factor I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. If you enjoy science and technology news, if you enjoy education, if you enjoy wholesome family entertainment, please check out my website, ScienceAnimated.net. And if you're looking for a present, Science Animated Human Body DVD or stream is available for less than it costs you for lunch, actually. You can have a Christmas present set aside. You get that part of your shopping done. That is available. And also check me out online in general. You can check me out at facebook.com slash science animated, twitter.com slash science animated, youtube.com slash science animated education. If you dig this radio show, you can check out all the past S factors in podcast form available on my website, scienceanimated.net, or your favorite podcasting service, whether that's Apple, Google, Spotify, Tuned In, Amazon Prime Podcasts. I'm on all of them. Just type in Science Animated Education and I'll pop right up. Subscribe to the YouTube and the, and the podcast. Never miss anything that I put out, any educational content. You'll be right on top of all the new stuff that comes out. I wish everyone an awesome, amazing Thanksgiving. And I'll see you with a brand new show next month right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. Until next time, everyone, be safe and stay curious. You have been listening to The S Factor, where it's all about science, right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. Take care, everybody.